Now in Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and that there is now no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me and said, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why? Why should a work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Then it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have set up prophets to proclaim concerning in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. And then I said to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all want to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will, be done, it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehdeval, who is confined in his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For his purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. For the past 21 years, war has been a constant reality for us in America. From the terrorist attacks on 9-11, to our nation's response in the Middle East, now to the current conflict in Ukraine, war has been a constant for us. And for several of us, our children have only known a world in which we have been involved in some sort of war or another. This past week, I was listening to one of Albert Moeller's debriefing podcasts, and in it, he reminds us that war has always been a constant in human history. From the very beginning of human history, we think of Cain and Abel. Somewhere at some time, a group of people have been in battle against each other. So what's normative for us now is sadly in a sinful world, always normative. War is always a constant. War is always a part of our reality. And that's not just true in the geopolitical realm. It's also true in the Christian life. As we've talked about before, when we faithfully read and study the Bible, there's so many doctrines and truths that come out to us out of it or come to us out of it. And we find that one of the truths is that God teaches us a worldview. As we said before, a worldview is just simply a set of beliefs used to understand the world. So which means everyone has a worldview. It can be a, a nihilist 
a materialist. You could be all sorts of things, but everybody has a set of principles by which they judge right and wrong, these principles which guides them in everyday living. So a worldview forms the basis of how you interpret reality, is how the lens through which you look at the world around you. It's what shapes our moral opinions. And as Christians, when we follow God in His world, follow God in His Word, our worldview is now shaped by God and by His Word. And part of this worldview is the reality of our spiritual reality. The spiritual reality of our life, which is based upon part what Paul explains in Ephesians 6 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So a biblical worldview tells us that you and I are in a world, are in a war. Our spiritual reality is that we are in a spiritual battle. And it doesn't matter if you like it or not. It doesn't matter if you want to accept it or not. The reality still stands that as a Christian, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And it's easy for us to fall into the belief that reality is only defined by what our five senses can discern. So if our, one of our five senses can't discern the spiritual battle, then it can't be real. But if that becomes our barometer... That reality is only defined by our five senses, then we automatically have to rule out belief in God. Because as our children's catechism does so well in defining for us, God is a spirit and has no body like man. Who of us has seen God? Who of us has touched God? None of us. It would rule out our belief in Jesus Christ. Because our five senses can't discern his resurrected self. It took Thomas doubting to be able to touch the wounds of Jesus for him to believe. But we don't have that. Jesus in his resurrected glory is now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Where our five senses cannot discern. We cannot believe in the Holy Spirit because we cannot discern him. So we can't use this barometer of reality of our five senses. Because remember how Hebrews defines faith. A belief in things unseen. So reality isn't about what our five senses can discern. Our reality is based upon and shaped by God's word. So then our reality is that you and I are constantly fighting a spiritual war against Satan. And we have to be careful to realize that is our reality. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We are set against Satan. And let me explain, let me explain this, let me be clear on this. That doesn't mean that every time something bad happens that it's the devil's fault. Sometimes it's our fault. Bad decisions lead to bad consequences. If we do something stupid, we can't blame the devil for the outcome. That's our fault. And sometimes things, bad things happen 
just because of the result of living in a sinful, fallen, and broken world. It's not the devil's fault. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. We live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. So we are to be careful to not look for demons under every rock. If you get for church next Sunday and your tires flat, and you say, oh, the devil doesn't want me to go to church. Well, maybe because you're not taking care of your car. It's not the devil's fault. You're just not taking care of your car. Just because something goes wrong doesn't make it the devil's fault. But at the same time, we're called to understand that we are actively engaged in spiritual warfare as part of our worldview. And we're engaged in it because Satan has engaged in it against us. You may not like it. You may not want to be a part of it. But it doesn't matter. Because Satan wants to kill you. It made no bones about it. Satan doesn't want anything good for you. He wants your eternal damnation. And he's going to do what he can to get you to hell. Satan will always be opposed to God, will always be opposed to his people, will always be opposed to God's will. He will fight us. He will target us. He is seeking our destruction. We can always expect opposition whenever we're living by the will of God. That is our reality. And that's part of the reality we see with Nehemiah in our passage this morning. As we read through about these group of men set against Nehemiah, you need to understand it's like the Wizard of Oz. Just pull back that curtain and there is Satan. In the background is Satan. He's working against God, against his people, against his will. And he's doing this through three people we are already familiar with. We're introduced again in verse 1. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of the enemies heard that Nehemiah built the wall, and there's now no breach left in it, although they had repaired the gates at that point. So the importance of a project can be measured by the extent of opposition to it. The Nehemiah's rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem was important indeed. And even though the foreigners opposed to Nehemiah, even though this group was opposed to Nehemiah, were thwarted by his confidence earlier in Nehemiah's confidence, Lord's favor, and his arming the builders, they're, they're not done. They're not done trying to stop the restoration of the city. They now make a third attempt to keep the walls of Jerusalem from completion. And again, these enemies we have been introduced to earlier in Nehemiah chapter 2, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Sambalat, Sambalat's name is Babylonian, which means he's naturally an enemy of God. He's a native of a town about 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah will tell us later on chapter 13 that Sambalat's daughter married the son of the high priest. Records from that time tell us that Sambalat was the governor of Samaria in 47 BC. This is 38 years after Nehemiah came to Jerusalem and that his two sons bore Jewish names. So putting all that together suggests that Sambalat married a Jew, although he wasn't Jewish, but he was a very ambitious politician and ruler and did not want the Jews to succeed in the area. Now, Tobiah Tobiah was a Jewish name, and like Sambalat, he had family connections through his son's marriage to the daughter of a high-ranking official in Jerusalem, and like Sambalat, he was keen to join in on the attack of Nehemiah. Then there's Gashem the Arab, who is, in the opinion of many commentators, 
the most powerful of the three. He and his son ruled tribes that had taken over Judah's neighbors to the east and south along the uh, territories en route to Egypt. So these three form this unholy trinity of opposition against the triumph God of Israel. Because from their vantage point, the completion of the wall of Jerusalem is a threat. It's a political threat. It's a physical threat. And so as they watch the wall be restored, they see their political ambitions crumbling apart. So time is short. They go on the attack. And the first strategy is to call Nehemiah to a political summit for talks. Nehemiah, come out and join us. We want to talk about things. And they suggested that this meeting take place in a neutral area. One of the villages in the plain of Ono, some 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem, not far from where Tel Aviv is situated today. I think there's some foreshadowing here with the plain of Ono. Because if you're a fan of the Beatles, you know that John Lennon married Yoko Ono. And Yoko Ono is the reason why the Beatles broke up. So if anything's happening around Ono, it cannot be good. That's where Yoko Ono is from. It can't be good. But come to this neutral place. And they say it so nicely. Nehemiah, come. Let's meet together. Let's meet together as bigwig leaders and politicians. Let's get things done. But Nehemiah sees right through it. They intended to do me harm. He has a nice way of saying they wanted to kill me. On the face, that may sound like paranoia. Maybe Nehemiah had breathed in too much brick dust and mortar. Messing with his brain. Remember, he had previous dealings with these men. His background's in politics. He had a very good idea of what would happen. This wasn't paranoia. This was wisdom. He knew his life was on the line. So in a very curt manner, he tells them no. Sends messengers to him says, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I, I, I love this. He, let's kind of rephrase it to what Nehemiah is saying. And he said, nope, no, no. This work is far more important to you. God's will is far more important to you. God's work is far more important than your little meeting. So good day to you. I'm done with you. They don't get the message. So they come back four more times. No, no, Nehemiah, come out. Come to Ono. Wine, grapes, figs. We'll have a wonderful time. Each time Nehemiah says, no. What God has called me to do is far more important than what you are after. There's a lesson here for us, isn't it? It's a lesson of worldview that our Christian biblical worldview is important and Dr. Derek Thomas of First Pres Columbia has some good thoughts on this Nehemiah's stance represents the Christian worldview in which commitment to truth and principle and both doctrine and ethics makes him appear mean spirited and tolerant even bigoted to his enemies in our time we can think of issues such as same-sex same-sex marriage, 
<coughs> excuse me, abortion education curriculum, commitment to principle and refusal to compromise appear as the inflexibility of intolerance and are uh, summarily ostracized. <coughs> Excuse me. Nehemiah is a standard bearer for the conviction that some things are worth standing up for and saying, as Martin Luther did at the Diet of Verne's when his life was on the line, <coughs> unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Does your worldview call for you to take a stand against the world around you? That just because the world calls it right, makes it right. Does it make it right? Are we willing to stand against the sins of society? And say it for what it is. We don't have to be jerks about it. Say it for what it is. Are we willing to stand up for the truth of God even when it may make us little in other people's eyes? Nehemiah is willing to stand up against three of the most powerful government officials around him. All for the sake of God and his will. None of us are standing up against powerful government officials. But we are standing against the world. And the question is, are we standing? Or are we lying down? After their four requests were denied, they used a <coughs> sorry, they used a different tactic. The same way he sent Balak for the first time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, that's why you're building the wall. And according to his report, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim, concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now come, let's take counsel together. <coughs> So with this, they are now going for the jugular. They're tired of playing nice. They're making up lies. They're making up window, rumors. They're making up windows, And they're doing all this to threaten to take it to the king. They're saying to Nehemiah, look, if you don't want to play the game we want you to play, then we're going to have you killed. We're going to say whatever it takes to get back to the king to have you killed. They're liars. They're lying. And they're going after Nehemiah with these lies. And this again is where our worldview comes in because we see behind this is Satan. Pull back the curtain behind that unholy trio, that unholy trinity of enemies, and you're going to find Satan there. Remember Jesus' character assessment, character assessment of Satan in John chapter 8. Talking to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. So it's no surprise then that these three would do 
what their father, Satan, would do and wants them to do, they lie. And therefore, it shouldn't surprise us when Satan and his minions do the same against us. Satan will lie against you. His people will lie against you and about you. If you are faithfully following after Christ, there will be lies. There will be in your windows. There will be rumors. You can count on it. It's one of their main weapons. And understand, they are good with it. They have been successful with it throughout all the ages. So we shouldn't be surprised when Satan and his minions lie. And we find Nehemiah's response as an example of how we should respond to these lies. Not with retaliation, not with revenge, but with patient and careful denial. Like the psalmist before him, Nehemiah found strength and refuge by laying on the Lord in his trouble. Nehemiah knew enemies' words cannot be trusted, but the words of God are always a source of balm and comfort. We think of Psalm 31. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak instantly against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence. You hide them from the plots of men. Yes, Satan's followers will lie against you. They did the very same against your Lord and Savior. But when we are in Christ, then we are in the truth. And God's truth will always win out. It may be that our character is assassinated. Maybe our character is solely somewhat in the community and may be that way until the day you die. But God's truth will always win out. And we always want to be in his truth. And finally, this story ends with Shemaiah, who was hired by the three enemies to try and trap Nehemiah in the temple, where Nehemiah had no right to be because he wasn't a priest. So not only would Nehemiah be cornered by his enemies, he would now also lose respect from his people by being a coward and go and going against God's word by now going into the temple. So Nehemiah denies this request. He prays for God's justice to be enacted on these enemies of God and on his people. And again, behind all this conflict, strife, and lying is Satan. Peter tells us he's always prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour the followers of Christ. And I would say this morning, this passage should serve as a sort of wake-up call for us. That the Satan who did all this in the passage is the same Satan who is targeting us and employing the same tactics against us. Our biblical worldview demands that we understand that we are living in a spiritual battle. And understand so we can engage it rightly and successfully. When we go back to the Ephesians 6 passage where Paul explains our spiritual reality. You know what comes next is the famous list of the armor of God. And I think it's sad. I'm going to say this in general terms. I think it's sad that the armor of God has been relegated in a sense in the church to, to a Sunday school lesson for children. For a curriculum for VBS. For the children to make 
paper hats and, and swords and, 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 and armor. We've made the spiritual battle a child's game. Here is Paul writing to a church in Ephesus whose very, their very lives are on the line. And he says, Satan hates you. And Satan is trying to kill you. Put on the armor of God, not just those between 4 and 12, but for all of life. This isn't a VBS feel-good curriculum. We need the armor of God. One of many images of war from the 20th century is of these young men and women being sent off to war. As young as as 18 years old, some of them not even able to shave. They have no facial hair. Just graduated from high school, pimply face, should be going off to their freshman year in college, yet they've been gone. They go through basic training and they are sent off to fight the war in Europe, in Korea, in Vietnam, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Iran. And now we're seeing in Ukraine young men being taken off the train and sent to battle the Russians. And I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine those pictures you see of those children that that's your child. It's not a Ukrainian. It's not something from 40, 50, 60 years ago. That's your son or daughter. Or your grandchild. Or your nephew or niece. Or even a child of this church who's been sent off to war. They're being sent to where the enemy is going to do everything they can to try and kill them. And you find out before they're deployed that they're not adequately armed. They don't have a good rifle. They don't have body armor. They don't have a helmet. What would you do? Put them in your car? Drive them up to the Columbia airport? And say, son, daughter, grandchild, nephew, niece, I'm so sorry this happened to you. We'll be praying for you. Best of luck. Or would you go and get them the best rifle you could find? Buy them all the body armor they could wear. Bulletproof Teflon helmet, goggles, to have them as well prepared for battle as you possibly could. I think we all know the answer to that question. You would spend your life savings to make sure your loved one would be properly protected in war. Now let me ask you this. Have you done all that you can with your loved one to protect them from the weapons of Satan? Have you done the same in spiritual warfare? Because this is our reality. I think we're a long way from ever seeing the draft again. But every one of us has been drafted into spiritual battle against Satan and he wants to kill your child and he wants to send your child to hell, your grandchild to hell, your niece or nephew to hell. He wants to send every covenant child in this church to hell. 
have we prepared them for this battle? Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, Sunday school teachers, elders, deacons, pastor. Have we done everything we can to prepare our children to fight with Satan? Have you done everything you can to model this sort of faith for your children and for the church? Do your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews, the children of this church, do they see you actively fighting against Satan? If you knew that you had to go to the grocery store and in order to get there you had to run through a gauntlet of snipers and tanks and riflemen, would you get in your car, roll down your window, leave your seatbelt off, crank up your favorite tunes and go for the ride? Or would you try to find a tank and armor up so you go to KJ's and get some chicken for Sunday dinner. Friends, we live in a dangerous world. Not just physically, but spiritually. And when we fail to understand that, when we fail to take it seriously, that's when trouble and danger arises. So we look to the winsome faith of Nehemiah. We see his commitment to God and his word, and we take heart. That as Satan came against him and these three men, he stayed faithful to God and his word. And we know that through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will come and lead us in that same winsome faith if we would just walk with him and obey him. And in that same faith, we know that he has conquered Satan on behalf of his people. And his victory is ours if we would just walk in the path of that victorious righteousness Wearing the armor of God. There is a war. And we are soldiers in it. At the end of the day we have to decide if we're going to follow Christ. And walk in victory with him. Or we choose not to. Or we're ultimately defeated by Satan. There is a war. We have to choose how we're going to battle in it. Pray with me.